If you would, uh, the book of Proverbs. How many of you are kind of, I don't know that I really issued it as a challenge. I think I kind of meant it that way, but I didn't really say it that way. Uh, but how many of you have kind of undertaken to read the book of Proverbs while we're going through this series or have picked up the Eugene Peterson All Church Book Read? Just show of hands. Wow, really cool. Um, just so you know that, that it is a challenge, what I talked about the first week was kind of something that had happened to me in grad school, uh, hearing about how Billy Graham had read a, a chapter of Proverbs a day um, in, a, in a psalm uh, or five psalms a day and would kind of cycle every month through those that way and how for a couple of years I did that. It was a life-changing event for me um, and that going into this series, it was kind of bringing that back up as something or the kind of thing that we need to do more of, just really um, immersing ourselves in Scripture to the point where it saturates our thinking so that when we're driving, when we're sitting, when we're standing, when we're in meetings, when we're alone, that thoughts and ideas and just um, understandings of, of how to see life and reality and decision-making would come to us. And so I really do uh, challenge you to read a chapter of Proverbs, maybe even five Psalms, if you, if you, if you want the, um, the A challenge, not the B challenge, but um, I challenge you to read that while we're going through this series and potentially even continue to do that after we're done with this series. And then we do have a book that the church is reading through by Eugene Peterson called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, uh, and that's on the Psalms of Ascent. And we just counsel you, if, if you're looking for a good read, maybe you can pick that up or buy it as a Christmas present for somebody. But in going through the book of Proverbs, I find that for the first time in my um, ministry, life as a pastor, whatever you want to call it, I'm going to speak on the topic of adultery. Why? Well, um, why have I never talked on it? Well, that's obvious because... It's one of those weird things where, like, you guys are all sitting there right now, like, I should have got the cough out before the sermon started. I should have adjusted my seat. You know, if I make a weird motion at the wrong time, people are going to be looking at me. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, I really got to go to the bathroom. There's no way I can get up now. Like, Ken will call me out. I mean, that's why I've never talked about it, because it's one of those weird, squirmy things. And that's not what today is about, by the way. There's some of you in this congregation in affairs. There's some of you in this congregation who are recovering from being in affairs or having a loved one in an affair. There's some of you that are struggling in your heart, um, very close to that reality. It's a part of life. It's why it shows up in the book of Proverbs to the tune of 66 verses in 7% of the whole book. So that answers the question why I'm talking about it now. Because if we're going to go through and spend all this time in the book of Proverbs, I, I can't neglect what is 7% of this book and is, is just dominates so much of the advice that's being given because it's a huge part um, of life. So we're talking on adultery. So chapter 5, we see kind of one of the first long sections of it, and we're just going to use this as kind of a part and parcel of all the other verses and say that they kind of really um, roll over many of the same themes in different ways, and so we'll use this as kind of the archetype. 
And uh, it's written in, from the perspective of uh, a father to a son. A lot of the book of Proverbs is written from the perspective of a father to a son. And that's uh, because it's Solomon, a lot of it's Solomon's wisdom or it's wisdom of kind of the ruling kings being passed on to heir parents, etc. Um, and so it really is in this tone of uh, to a boy or a man on how to avoid adultery and how to avoid the adultress. And I think the principles carry across to both sexes. I have often wondered, I don't have a son, I have four daughters, and I've often wondered, well, gee, what would Solomon have said? Um, because he's, when he's talking to the, the son, he's like, you know, avoid this woman, this kind of woman. And, and so I've always wondered, well, what would he say to the son or the, the daughters? And, uh, and I think it's, so I'm, I'm just trying to remove this right off the bat, and then we can move on to talking to the guys. But I think if Solomon was writing to his daughters, he wouldn't say just avoid this kind of man. I think Solomon would say avoid men. They haven't yet evolved to where they need to be, and as a species, you need, you need to just rule them out. It's what I teach my daughters. There's only, there are, there are, I teach my daughters there are only two good men in this world, uh, Charles Ingalls and their daddy. Um, and someday they're going to learn that he's just an actor with a fake tan and I will stand alone. Um, right where I want to be. Um, so we're coming from the perspective of uh, father to his sons about the adulteress. Like I said, um, if you want to add the female component, it's just men. <laughs> Anyways, um, chapter 5, verse 1. My son, pay attention to my wisdom and listen well to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her, her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, and her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Now then, my son, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your best strength to others in your years to one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your, your toil enrich another man's house. And at the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. And you will say, how I hated discipline and how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. And I've come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. And then Solomon goes on and says, drink water from your own cistern. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Be content with your own lot in life. Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. And may your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Down to verse 20. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? For a man's ways are in full view of the, of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. 
The evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him, and the cords of his sin hold him fast. And he will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. So there are three things, essentially, I see in this chapter. So I just want to walk us through those three things. The first one kind of comes out of the first chunk. And it's this, um, the lips of an adulteress drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. It has the appearance of pleasure. It has the appearance of something desirable. It has the appearance of something you have to have. Sin has the appearance of something you desire, the appearance of something you want, the appearance of something you have to have. Sin is enticing. Um, right at the book of Genesis, it says, um, sin is crouching at your door and seeks um, to devour you, yet you must master it. I mean, there is a tension that exists with sin. Sin reaches out and, and, and gets into your insides and hits buttons. Sin can get to you. It it can get in your mind. It can get in your thoughts. It can get into your life. It is actively after hitting buttons in you, and it wants to enslave you. Think of an octopus just reaching out, and it wants to grab hold of you, ensnare you, and enslave you, yet you must master it. And it says this in verse 4, but so in the end... The adulteress is not what it promises to be. She promises to be. In the end, is she is a bitter as gall and sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to her ways. And then when you um, realize your life has come to an end, and it says, at the end, your life will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. The first thing here stay away from the adulteress. Stay away from the adulterer. Stay away from sin. Stay away. It's not just don't do it. It's stay away. We, we don't realize that sin is something that um, has a reach, and the closer you get to it, the greater the reach it has on you. It's, it's a, a death star with a with a tractor, I don't know, what was it, for, what, what was it that sucked in, yeah, and, and it, it will suck you in, and, and so, and it, and it will take your life, and so you don't just say to yourself, I'm going to say no to sin, you say to yourself, I'm going to steer around sin, I'm going to avoid sin, I'm going to see it for what it really is. I'm not going to play games with sin. I'm not going to be enticed by sin. I'm not going to listen to the sirens song. I'm not going to be fooled into, into, into just hanging out, thinking and, and dreaming about how, how good life could be if I could just have sin. Because here's the great misconception with sin. I wrote this down. There's an allusion to sin that you can add it to your life, when in, realities you, uh, when in reality you always have to trade for it. There's an illusion that you can add it to your life, when in reality you always have to trade for it. 
with adultery, with sin. It's, I've got this. I got the good, I got the bad, but I got this. And if I could just add that, it would add to my pleasure. But with sin, it's always a trade. A trade of giving up relationship. A trade of giving up your character. A trade of giving up your relationship with God. A trade of giving up peace and tranquility in your heart that says, I'm accepting my lot and I, and I have a degree of contentment. And there's always a trade with sin that brings about consequence that wreaks havoc in your life, the life of people around you. Somehow, some way, it is always a trade, yet we want to live under the illusion that we can just have it with no cost. And it can't be had that way. Uh, this is from a commentary. I have to tell you that because if I didn't tell you it was from a commentary, it'd be, I would feel like I'd be cheating uh, in a message on adultery, which would, wouldn't make sense. Um, but Warren Wearsby says this, and I, you know, it would have been a great quote to steal. The most expensive thing in the world is sin. The most expensive thing in the world is sin. It costs you your life. It costs the life of those around you that you love. And it costs Jesus his life to remedy for it. And so we have to understand this and stay away from it. Most affairs, they'll tell you, the experts digging around will tell you, happen because of proximity. So it's workplace affairs. So it's, it's, a, it's a slow um, being too close to a line you shouldn't be next to um, with a coworker or a biographer. Um, and the idea is it's not a line that we go, I'm not over the line, so I'm fine. It's a lot like Chernobyl. It's nonsensical to talk about a line, right? I mean, picture it. Well, you know, I mean, I'm only this far into Chernobyl, not like 10 feet further. You guys look at me like, it doesn't make sense. That's the whole point. You understand what I'm saying? Like, you, you guys aren't getting it. All right, Chernobyl is toxic. And its toxicity doesn't just stop at a certain line. It reaches and reaches and reaches, and that's why that whole area became a ghost town, because you had to remove yourself so far from it so as not to be affected by the fallout. Sin, uh, the adulterous aspects of sin, areas of temptation, uh, areas that are not safe, those are not things that have a definitive line next to them. They're toxic realities that we have to stay away from, identify, walk around, run away from, get away from them, and we're only going to do that if we really understand that sin takes your life. It's not just a random pleasure there with no cost. We have to associate in our minds with it that this will take my soul. It will destroy my life. I have a, I have a, I have a, I have a, is Tamara in here? What is peaches? I have a dog that was a mistake. What is she? A Bajan poodle. That should have been my first clue, right? <laughs> I thought 
I had been told that this kind of dog didn't bark. Um, now, I was, evidently, I, was, I either heard wrong or somebody was wrong. This bog, uh, this bog, this, this, this thing barks. And she, she's little. She's little. She patrols the fence line like she owns the house. But she, she's like, really? But she runs up and down the fence barking at everything. And it's an angry bark. You know what I mean? It's like it's an angry bark. It really drives you crazy. Well, it doesn't just drive me crazy. It drives all my neighbors crazy. And that adds extra stress because then I feel like no matter what, I'm that guy that none of the neighbors like, right? And I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be friends with my neighbors. I'm supposed to tell you guys stories about how my neighbors love me and my character shines through and I'm, I've led them all to the Lord and we do potlucks on Sundays. Um, it's not true. My neighbors actually hate me. <laughs> I live in fear that, um, I don't live in, that's not, actually not a fear. I, I suspect one day that my dog will be poised. It's not a fear, but half hope, half, half suspect <laughs> that she'll be, because my, my neighbors really, do, they, hate, they hate us. Um, we recently bought, I shouldn't share this part. Um, we tried a long time ago, this is before the Justice Conference, to use a shock collar. <laughs> but she's really small and she's not very smart. So when it shocks her, she just starts yelping and it, and it keeps shocking her. And it's like she, she's just getting bounced around the yard and smoke's coming out and you think she's going to die of a heart attack. This happened with a, at an intern uh, barbecue, and it was, it, we had interns in counseling. It was really traumatic. Um, so we, we, we stopped that, and then we just lived with neighbors that hate us and didn't think we could do anything. But then we found out there's actually a humane kind of bark color uh, that sprays citronella in her face every time she barks. <laughs> I... I this has been my latest joy in life, right? Um, so she's relearning at age like seven or whatever um, a new trick, you know, which is don't bark. Um, or you get citronella sprayed in your face. And she doesn't like it. I guess dogs, for whatever reason, really don't like it. Um, dogs and mosquitoes. Go figure. Uh, we need some kind of collar that will spray some kind of junk in our face when we think about barking like it's a good thing, you know. When sin is in front of us and it's seeking to entice us and we begin to think, wouldn't that be fun? Like, it's like car commercial where the car honks. You know what I'm talking about? Guy's going in for the kiss and then the car, like the beep sound of the car horn. You know what I'm talking about? It's like warning, like you're, you're about to go too far. Um, you guys should have one of those for the sermon. Um, we need something to tell us, no, I'm reading this all wrong. It looks sweet, but in the end, it's as bitter as gall, and it will take my life. It'll take the life of uh, those around me. This is not okay. By the way, if you're single, purity is not just a, a married conversation. And I think there's this kind of thing going on today that it's like um, 
all the conversations on purity don't don't matter to you because you're not married yet. And so it's kind of like all these ways to just kind of excuse it. And it's it's not, it's another grand way of saying, oh, I can have this, but there's no cost to it. I can add this to my life. I don't have to necessarily trade for it. And that is absolutely, fundamentally wrong. And, and we, need, we need something to remind us. We need friends to remind us. We need scripture to remind us. We need something to spray us in the face so that we wake up and we go, this is not the way this is going to go down. In the long run, this will, will suck the life right out of me. And so we stay away. We stay away. Number two, it's about a path. And this is so, we talked about this the other week, and I want to just underscore this again. This is about a path, not an action. It's about the trajectory of your life, not about single moments. It's certainly about single moments. But those single moments and what you do in those moments are predetermined by the path you choose in life. And I don't mean the path you choose today. I mean the path you have predetermined to follow in life. I mean, look at this. She gives no thought to the way of her life. Her paths are crooked. She knows it not. Her steps lead straight to the grave. So keep to a path far from her. Do not go near to the door of her house. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near to the door of her house. And so the whole thing we're going to find as we look through this, if you, if you moved over to chapter 7, it's the same thing, talking about um, the paths and the way of the simple and the way of the wise and calling out for understanding. And at the end of our life, if we've taken the wrong path, what, what the book of Proverbs calls the path of folly, at the end of our life, if we take that path, we will groan and our body will be spent and we will say how I hated discipline and how my heart spurned correction. Verse 13, I would not obey my teachers or listen to my, instruction, uh, my instructors. And I have come to the brink of utter ruin and in the midst of the whole assembly. So we choose a path in life. And there's, those two paths are marked out. One is the wise path. One is the foolish path. One is marked with wisdom and discernment and understanding and correction and discipline and and it's it's uh it's very smart the other one has no discipline to it and it's a bit chaotic and it's reactionary and it's driven by the winds and there's there's no thought to it and it's the path of folly and what the book of proverbs is saying is at the end of your life you will either rejoice because the fruit of your life will have brought you publicly into the assembly. You know, it's hard, it's hard to mask your reputation at age 60 or 70 or 80. You know what I mean? Like you've, you've lived enough life, you know, it's, it's there. Who you are, what your legacy is, what your name is, it's just public if, if, you, if you've lived a really foolish life and ruined yours and other people's lives, you're just not going to hide it. Everyone knows it. They can see the wake. And, and so someday you will be brought 
publicly into the open. There's something about sin that it always wants to be done in secret. Why do we want to do sin in secret? It's, it's, it's an obvious answer, but I don't think we ever ask the question. Why do we want to do sin in secret all the time? Why are all affairs uh, trying to hide themselves? Because we know it'll ruin our life. We're not dumb, right? We're just manipulative. But I, I think we got to listen to ourselves here. Why do I always want to hide sin? Because I know if people knew about this, I, I know that if it was public, it, it would ruin things. And so I try and keep it hidden. But in the end, it's all going to come out in the assembly. And if you go the wayward way, it will come out. You will not be able to hide sin. The, the, it always comes to light. And if you choose this way, the path of wisdom, at the end, you will finish well and you will be praised for it. People will look to you and want to follow you and you will have satisfaction and contentment. Or you will have disappointment and regret. Uh, there's something I, I, I want more than anything in my life and it's not to have regrets. I don't want to live with regrets. Um, we'll talk some about that in the next couple of weeks, but how you handle conflict, how you approach people, how you try and deal with things head on so that you don't sweep things under the rug, but you get it dealt with so that you don't have regrets. But this whole idea of a path, and it's a pre-commitment, it's are you going to serve God or are you going to serve yourself? The way this would be talked about in the New Testament is they're... Um, their God was their stomachs, and their glory was in their shame. What does that mean? Their God was their stomach. What do we, what do we usually think of when we're trying to figure out what the path is or what our decisions are going to be? What do we usually say to our friends when they're asking us for advice? It's kind of like the default. Well, whatever makes you happy. Well, whatever you want to do. Like, whatever you feel like. I mean, what do, what do you really want we're so patterned to, to teach people to really take stock in that moment and say, am I really happy? You know, am I, do I have enough pleasure in my life? Or, or do I feel frustrated because there's a lot of things I want or wish I could have or think I might be happier with? And I, golly gee, all I need is somebody to give me permission to walk away from this so that I can have this because then I can like serve my own appetite. And I will follow my appetites as if my stomach is the compass that leads me through life. Their God was their stomach and their glory, what was their name or their, their reputation, their, the, their glory, what they were known for was in their shame, their sin. And this path of folly is this weird thing where we're we're going with whatever we feel like, and there's no commitment, there's no discipline, there's no structure, there's no long term, and there's no question of what's right, and there's no question of what it will lead to. It's only what do I want, or what do I feel like? And on this side, you have the path of wisdom, and what marks that path? Faithfulness. Fidelity. There's no secret to what this path is. It's marked out for us. It's the commands. It's the will of God. 
It's what's revealed from God. It's what's right. It's what our conscience pricks us with. It's what the Holy Spirit speaks to us and convicts us about. And really, it's this clear path that God says, as you walk this path, I will bless you. And you will have love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and all this bounty of fruit in your life. And it will be rich. And it's not cheap and momentary cotton candy that's going to give you a bad stomach ache afterwards and ruin things. It's deep and it's lasting. And at age 60, you can sit there and go, I love my life. I wouldn't trade my life for the world. I have no regrets. I hold my head high in the assembly. It's not that there's a secret to what this path is. The only thing about this path is a commitment in our hearts to say, am I willing to follow Christ? Am I willing to be obedient? Am I willing to submit to God? Am I willing to be faithful? It's fidelity to this path. And if I leave this path, it's breaking faith with God and trusting him and saying, I'm going to call my own shots. And, and I'm going to be unfaithful to what you've asked me to do. And so the funny thing about Proverbs, why would 7% of the book of Proverbs have to do with adultery? Because adultery is the picture, the end result, the end sin, if you will, of a prior decision with which we walk to in life. Here's how it goes. If I choose to trust God, I will walk this path and I will begin to learn that whatever comes to me is coming from the hand of God. It's what God intends for me to have. And that if I want more than that, I'm only going to be challenging God, questioning God, and driving myself crazy. And so I learn to accept my lot from God. This is my lot. I'm not, I'm not going to question God. I'm not going to be disappointed with God. I'm going to learn the secret of contentment. And when I learn it, because by the way, if you don't learn to be content, you'll never be satisfied because there can always be more. And every time you, you think you're going to get a little bit more, you want more and more and more and more. And so somewhere in this path, we have to learn, if we're going to continue to follow God, the secret of being content. And when we learn the secret of being content, it begins to be easier to obey because we trust God. Hey, look, you've taken care of me. You give me enough. And, and with what I have, I'm actually satisfied. And I have good relationships. And I go to bed with a smile at the end of the day. And I wake up whistling. Even if I'm sick, even if I'm unhealthy, there's, there's a joy, there's a state of being that I can wake up and, and walk this path with, with joy, satisfaction, contentment. And so when, when this opportunity to sin comes or the wayward woman or the wayward man comes, I look at that and say, there's no way in the world, there's no way in the world I'm going to trade this for that. So faithfulness and fidelity, not only to this path, not only to God, but ultimately in marriage. On this path, you begin to go, well, what makes me happy today might not make me happy tomorrow. And what made me happy when I wasn't thinking of the consequences usually begins to not satisfy me when the consequences begin to happen. And then I begin to get um, depressed. My life is messed up. 
my life is, is screwed up. And, and then I got to go find more pleasure. It's like an addict syndrome. And, you know, because, you know, my life is now just going off course. And how do I find more pleasure? And I begin grasping for things. And I'm looking for anything that will promise me uh, relief and pleasure and, and intimacy and togetherness and escape. And so as I'm walking down this path and then I get to the doorway of the wayward woman or the wayward man and, and I'm not trained to be obedient and I haven't heeded the voice of correction and, I, and I'm not experiencing the bounty of a relationship with God, then all of a sudden it's like an oasis in the middle of a wasteland and this person falls into adultery. And adultery becomes the end picture of infidelity to God and the commands of God, a lack of contentment, a lack of understanding what contentment is, an unwillingness to accept our lot in life, and, and to always reach and grasp for things that, that don't belong to us. And ultimately, the end picture of that becomes adultery, infidelity and adultery, obviously, are cut out of the same cloth. So why are 7% of the verses in Proverbs about adultery? Because the book of Proverbs is about a path of fidelity. The book of Proverbs is about a path, a pre-commitment in life about which way you're going to go day in and day out, about fidelity and therefore the end result of staying true in marriage or being in a situation where you fall into adultery. So if there's anything you get out of this series on the book of Proverbs, it's this. Life is not meant to, to go through, and then randomly we kind of, um, like with a dipstick, try and gauge where we're at and maybe what we should do. It's not meant to be so punctilier. Is that a word? Is that, like, um, is that a word? You know what I mean? Like points. You know what I mean? It's meant to be a, a line, a path. Not, is it a word? You guys are, we're on to the next point already. All right. So Proverbs six twenty three through 29. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light. And the corrections of discipline are the way to life, keeping you from the immoral woman. The commands are a lamp, the same thing in, in Psalm 119. The commands, the teachings, the instructions, God's will, where God leads, it's a light. It, it lights up our path. It shows us where to walk. It's not just about random moments of life asking God what a decision should be. It, it's about a submission and a commitment to follow a path and a way of life, the way of the righteous where Christ would lead us, the life of discipleship. Our relationship with Jesus isn't just thanks for salvation, I'll see you in 60 years when I die. It's I'm willing to put off my old life, die to that life, resurrect in some sense, what baptism pictures, resurrect again so that, okay, here I am now, where are we going, Jesus? And I'm going to follow you. Why? Because you're not just my Savior, but you're my King as well. 
You're my leader. You're my good shepherd. You, you have a role that leads me through life, not just the role of dispensing salvation, although that's certainly there. These commands are a lamp unto our feet. Number three is this. By the way, real quickly, when we choose this path by either directly choosing not to walk this path or by default never thinking about a path so that we slowly just find ourselves on a, on a foolish path. Does that make sense? I think sometimes we're just, find our, we're just not paying attention enough. We're not uh, attending to our faith enough that we just find ourselves on this path. But, but what happens is as it begins to ruin our life, as it begins to be public in the general assembly, as it begins to wreak destruction, we get bitter. And Proverbs teaches this, and it's one of the most challenging passages in Scripture for me ever since I first read it. A man's or a woman's own folly ruins his life. Yet in his heart he rages against the Lord. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet in his heart he rages against the Lord. There's something strange about this that we have to realize that our decisions in the destruction we bring about in our own life becomes for us something that drives God away, whereby we want to drive God away. And it, and it turns on itself. It's a sick and twisted thing. But if you're sitting there today and your life is in ruin, I ask you to check your heart. Do you really, deep down, still hold God responsible? If your sin or your, your own poor decisions have ruined your life, have you really owned up to that? Asked forgiveness, reconciled with God? Or are you still bitter because it's one or the other. If you haven't accepted it, if you haven't repented, if you haven't made peace and come back over to here, you're, you're going to be angry and God's going to feel very distant from you. And a man's own folly ruins his life, says the book of Proverbs. Yet in his heart, he rages against the Lord. Sin makes you an atheist, at least a practicing atheist. Sin encourages you to push God away. Sin creates practical atheists. Do you want to be an atheist? There's an easy recipe. Start sinning. Make excuses for yourself and start sinning and watch your relationship with God deteriorate. The last thing is this. I want to read these verses again. They're going to put them on the screen. Chapter 5, verse 21. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord. For he examines all his paths, and the evil deeds of a wicked man ensnare him, and the cords of his sin hold him fast, and he will die for lack of discipline, led astray by his own great folly. These verses tie together. I think we're going to leave one of those on screen for the rest of the time, but these verses tie it all together. The cords of sin hold him fast. Um, think of the verses in, in Hebrews. Uh, throw off the sin that so it easily entangles and run with perseverance uh, the, the race marked out for you. This idea of throwing off the tentacles of sin 
that, that so easily will hold you. It's bringing that theme back. Uh, the ways of a man are in full view of the Lord, and God examines all his paths, the path we choose, whether it's the right path, whether we're following God, or whether we're straying, and there's a degree of infidelity. We're not being faithful, and it's going to lead to all kinds of sin. It's going to manifest in all kinds of sin. See, the interesting thing about this sermon on adultery, have you ever had friends like, if you're talking to friends, I mean, just picture back to like high school or college, right? Youth group. Like if you ever went to like Young Life or something like that, picture back to Young Life. You go talk to one friend about something you want to do that's, that's going to get you in trouble. And that one friend says this, right? You guys remember this friend? You can't do that. It's wrong. Remember that friend? Really rule-bound friend, and it's all about the commands, right? Then there was the friend you went to, and you're like, hey, I plan on doing this. It's going to get me in trouble. And that friend kind of starts snickering or laughing at you, and you're like, what? And, and that friend says, you're an idiot. Remember that friend? He's not going, that's just wrong. What he's saying to you is, you're really stupid. You really think that's going to work? That's going to so mess you up, mess up life. Like, you're really stupid. Okay? If we had turned to Exodus and we were talking about the Ten Commandments, that would be talking about adultery from the standpoint of thou shalt not. If we wanted to get even rowdier with it, we'd turn to Paul in the New Testament and put the fear of God in you about the state of your salvation if you're living in that kind of sin. Okay? There are passages which are really heavy on the um, thou shalt not. The book of Proverbs, when it talks about adultery, the general tone, it's like the friend that says, man, you're really stupid. Like, you're an idiot. Don't do this. Where where do you get off thinking that this is actually going to work? You understand where I'm going with this? When we're talking about adultery here, we're talking about this is a bad decision that will ruin your life, affect your relationship with God, affect all your relationships, and ultimately leave you in ruin come the end of your life. Now, certainly there is forgiveness. Certainly God can redeem people. Certainly there is grace. But on the warning side of this, this will ruin your life. And we add to this, this last verse that I think is on the screen. For a man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. Here's the final two thoughts. Purity and holiness go together. If we sin, and we think we can hide it, and we want to do it in the dark, and we want to, we want to cover it up, and we want to remove it, It's because we deep down know that sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. We know that. We know that impurity in our sin cannot exist in the open right next to the holiness of God. And the reality is the degree, let me read this because I wrote it down. I don't do that often. The degree of impurity you're willing to tolerate in your life is the degree of tarnish you're willing to accept on your view of the holiness of God. 
The degree of impurity you're willing to tolerate in your life is the degree of tarnish you're willing to accept to your view of the holiness of God. If you're willing to play around with sin, I can tell you something about the size of the God you worship. Namely, that he's very small and can deal with a little bit of tarnish. It doesn't really matter what happens to him. He's not holy and majestic and awesome and big and scary. Because goodness can be very scary too. Because it doesn't yield. That's why the fear of the Lord throughout the book of Proverbs is the beginning of wisdom because we realize that God is big and He's holy and He's majestic and His goodness is fixed and that we can't tarnish that. We can only hide from it and run from it and have our lives ruined because of our sin, but our sin can't exist in the light and be right because that would mean somehow God goodness breaks or is diminished or goes away, and that can't happen. And so impurity and the holiness of God cannot coexist. And our purity is our human expression or reflection of the holiness of God. And none of us is perfect in and of ourselves, and that's why when we have this relationship with Christ, Christ comes and says, I will take all of your impurity, and I will give you my grace, which basically washes that so that we can put you in the presence of God, white paint with white paint, because if we weren't made clean, we would be a kind of gray paint. And you know what happens when you take gray paint and put it in a bucket of white paint? The white paint isn't white anymore. And so we cannot stand in the presence of God if we remain in our sin. But Jesus dies for our sin. He gives us our grace so that we can be made pure, so that we can stand in the presence of a holy God, of our Father God, who wants to hear our prayers and answer our prayers and have fellowship with us and bless our life. But we can't keep on sinning. It's all over the New Testament. That doesn't take away salvation or diminish grace. It's saying, but if you've been given this grace, and if you've been set free to this position, and given this wonderful joy, and you've got the greatest in life, this lot that you can be content with, how then can you keep on sinning? And the only way that can happen is if this is not your, your paradigm. This is not your worldview. You don't see what's going on here. You're not excited about it. You actually see a small God or, or a foggy God, and, and you're at the point where you're able to break with that God and begin to toy with sin and commit a type of infidelity or adultery. That's why God always uses adultery as the symbol in the prophets for the waywardness of His people. And we choose a path of adultery. And we hide our sin, we live in our sin, and we get angry at God and we're bitter at God because our life is in ruins and we push Him away. Because sin and impurity cannot exist with and in a relationship for long or in the presence of God. 
So we commit to walk this way. When we make mistakes, we cry aloud for more grace. We say we're sorry. We own our own sin. We go to other people and make amends. And we, we find ourselves back restored and redeemed. And we can rejoice in that. But if we continue to go this way, our way is in full view of the Lord. He sees it and he examines it and his goodness will not bend, but our life of sin will break. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that none of us here are perfect. None of us here are above sin. The lesson of Jesus telling people to throw stones if they're without sin, that they could throw the first stone, was meant to prove that none of us have the right to judge another person. Father, I just pray you would take judgmental, legalistic thinking out of our hearts, replace it with a love and a deep desire for our brothers and sisters, whether they're walking true to come around, comfort and courage and affirm them, or whether they're walking in sin and that we would pray for them, we would shed tears over them, we would run after them, we would plead with them reason with them even that this is not going to lead to the place they want to get. Take any judgment in our hearts, replace it with love and grace, and please let us be humble enough to realize any one of us, any one of us is susceptible to falling. So please just let us be humble. Let us be restored by your grace, let us be lifted up by your mighty right arm. Let us learn and be taught and be corrected and instructed by your Holy Spirit. Teach us to thirst, to hunger and thirst for righteousness and righteousness alone. For only in that do we know that we will be satisfied. We pray that in Jesus' name.